everyone fails at something. We all aim for success, but we are okay with failure. Or at least you've got to be okay with failure. It's not like as if you just brush things off and like, oh, I got failure every, every now and then and it's okay. You have to learn. You have to be able to process what's happened. What can I take from that? How can I be better? From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, Dr. Gerardo Poli, author of the Mini Vet Guide, Emergency Veterinarian and Director at Animal Emergency Service, a business with four hospitals based in Queensland, Australia. Gerardo completed his veterinary degree at the University of Queensland in Australia in 2008, graduating with first class honours. He was awarded the Australian Veterinary Association Student Award and Gerardo was also selected as valedictorian of his year. Following graduation, he spent almost three years in busy small animal general practice finding his feet, but in 2010 discovered his passion in the high-octane field of emergency and critical care. Gerardo achieved his membership with the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists in the field of emergency and critical care in 2012, completing his decade-long education binge with his Master's in Veterinary Studies through Murdoch University two years later in 2014. When he straps on his Superman outfit at work, Gerardo gets most excited about snatching critically ill patients back from the jaws of death especially when it involves ultrasound and radiology, surgery and CPR. Hopefully those last two things not too frequently together. But his talents do not end in the emergency room and many of you will know him as the author of the best-selling Mini Vet Guide, a diagnostic decision-making book which has sold more than 10,000 copies and is beloved of student and new graduate vets worldwide. All of which seems like a really long way of saying he's a bit of a veterinary rock star. So in this conversation, we discussed resilience and building self-esteem, being okay with overwhelm, how to transfer skills, particularly challenging clinical ones, to the next generation of vets, principles versus protocols in medicine, why capability is a double-edged sword, how he creates space for his team to grow, and why he believes you have to invest in your people. Gerardo may move fast at work, but he is something of a deep thinker, which made his insights during our conversation even more valuable. I hope you enjoy and learn as much from this conversation as I did. So without further fanfare, sit back and enjoy my conversation with the fantastic Dr. Gerardo Poli. I am super excited to have a gentleman on today. I've thought about getting on the podcast since uh, when I made my startup list of people that I thought would be interesting to interview in the veterinary world. Gerardo was on that list, and I think you're going to find out why as we go through a conversation today. So, Gerardo, welcome to Blunt Dissection. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much for the invite. You're welcome. And now we're in different time zones at the minute, so it's my morning. It's your what time o'clock have you got just now? It's almost nine o'clock at night here, so it's, it is kind of actually my most productive time of the day. So, being a creature of the night, so a creature of the night, highly caffeinated creature of the night. Yeah, You've actually, got- the caffeine comes out mid-afternoon. That's when I do a lot of exercise and try to keep fit and sort of balance myself out. So it's when the caffeine kicks in. 
after that, generally I sort of hold off. So try to limit the amount that I get. Awesome. Now, Gerardo, why don't you, we usually start the podcast just by like offering you the chance to just tell the listeners, and I'm sure lots of my listeners know who you are already, but I'm sure there's some that will not have heard of you yet and your work. So why don't you just paint for us the picture of your backstory and what it is you do now? Because I think it's a, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, okay. So I'll give you a, an, an abridged version, I'm sure. So I am a emergency veterinarian in Brisbane, Australia. I am a director of a sort of after-hours hospitals called Animal Emergency Service. We offer emergency and care to uh, referring veterinarians in the public of Queensland, and one of our hospitals is in Perth as well. So what I do in my everyday, I suppose – the perception is that I spend quite a lot of time in the clinic seeing primary patients and treating patients, and I, I do spend quite a lot of time as a primary emergency clinician. But a lot of my roles these days, a lot of my things I do in the hospital are actually all around or revolved around mentoring and training veterinarians new to the, the field of emergency critical care and also distributing knowledge uh, within the actual senior veterinary team and making sure that they can pass on um, what they have learnt and picked up along the way to our vets that are coming through the ranks. And uh, the other thing I do is, as part of my uh, role as a director, is not only help guide the direction of the company itself, but also try to engage with our referring veterinarians and try to offer them and provide them with support so that uh, they can also, I suppose, provide the best care that they can provide if there's any way that I can help them with that. Okay, well that's a nice point to kick off with and you very humbly not mentioned your book at all which I'm sure is influencing a lot of people around the world and certainly why you... I do often forget that I do that. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing wrong with humble I don't think. Uh, I have a marketing manager that keeps me very humble. They'll be kicking you at the minute. So, Gerardo, you didn't mention the book. <laughs> that's all right. I'll be your marketing manager for just now, if that's okay mm-hmm. with you. Because that's where I first encountered you, uh, was I was um, building new graduate training programs in Australia in general practice and looking for ways to help graduates understand decision-making pathways. And I think that's what your book, The Mini Vet Guide to Companion Animal Medicine, does an extremely good job of. Now, I don't know if you're you're aware of how far and wide this book's gone. imagine you probably are, but just to give you uh, some feedback on the scope of that, which might make you giggle, was I was recently in a clinic in India, in Mumbai. And sure enough, on the little bookshelf, there's a, a BSAVA drug formulary. And right next to it, is a copy of the mini vet guide. And I thought that's <laughs> hilarious how far this thing's gone and also how small our world is. So it's out there and it's clearly making a difference. So congratulations on having a book that's out there and, and is doing great things in the space. Thank you. appreciate the, the compliment there. I suppose I don't take compliments very well or at least don't provide them to myself very well so, or very often. <laughs> so... We'll come on to the book in a little second, but I think it would be a really interesting point of like exploration. You're one of, we have had clinicians on the podcast before, and so you sort of bridge the divide between being active clinically and being thought leader. 
in your niche, in your critical care niche. So I'm kind of just curious about, and you're going to have to forgive me, like I do ask questions that wander directions and have multiple sort of sub points in there. So you might want to take notes to start them. <laughs> well, let's start yeah. easy and just talk me through like your typical day in the critical emergency critical care department. Let's start there. Yeah, sure. So at the moment, at least for the past six months, we've been heavily recruiting and training veterinarians because we recently just expanded and uh, built a new hospital in Brisbane. And first for the last six a, months, a, a sense of the size, Gerardo, like how many veterinarians have you got on the across the group now, and, and what size of the teams you're managing? Ah, oh, okay, yeah. So our hospital in Underwood, in the south of Brisbane, is probably the largest emergency hospital in Australia. Our emergency team, which primarily consists of full-time veterinarians, probably sitting somewhere around about 24, 25 vets. A new hospital in the western suburbs of Brisbane is actually a lot smaller and has been designed to be a lot more sort of compact. The issues we found with a larger hospital was that it required a lot of staff to actually man the space. You have to have a receptionist, you'd have to have a nurse, and the nurse wasn't able to cover both reception and nursing. So actually the economics of a large hospital became quite troublesome, especially late at night when staff wages are quite high. So economically, it actually it costs more to provide a service in a larger hospital. So our Gingerly Hospital is a lot smaller, and we've been building our team because it actually has done better than what we thought. And we somewhat over understaffed for a little while there and talking about fatigue management and also work-life balance. Our team has been, how would you say, on the cusp of overworked, if possibly actually probably they are overworked. So to cut a long story short, we are building a team and, and my day generally starts with walking into the hospital and discussing with clinicians who have been there already, who have cases in hospital and talking about anything that they might have any concerns with, going through cases. One of my key strengths, I suppose, would be diagnostic imagery, especially ultrasound. So frequently I will repeat an ultrasound before would be the first thing I do as I walk through the door, looking at x-rays, just following through cases that sort of the clinicians that um, have been working them up are sort of stuck at or need some confirmation that what they see is actually what they see, you know, or is what they think it is. So then from there is, is generally mentoring a, a veterinarian. So I'll have a, a vet that will shadow me through the day and we will go into consults together. If the patient that comes through or the case that comes through is, how would you say, of a particular type that I think that the, the veterinarian that I'm mentoring at that stage will be capable of seeing, then slow entry into consultations process and diagnostic workup. So so we sort of slowly ease our our vets, even experienced vets, we ease them into the world of emergency and critical care. So that's an interesting area to talk about a little bit more. So your day sounds very much more involved in a leadership capacity with more specialty interventions on the more the harder stuff, the stuff that's a little more challenging to learn. So I've got a couple of questions on that. The first would be, and I think across the board, and please correct me if, if this is different in Australia, it certainly was, whilst I was there, it was a challenging part of the role of any anybody trying to build a, a practice was recruiting experienced veterinarians 
or clinical staff generally into the business and then retention is a whole other ballgame. But that's true here in the UK. It's certainly true in the US. So it seems to be, you know, a global, certainly a Western global phenomenon that we, we struggle with people. Now, here you are talking about a lot about your mentoring and, and that's probably not something that necessarily immediately helps you with recruitment, but it definitely helps you with retention. What have you found to be an effective mentoring setup or pathway? Like, how do you go about that? And, you know, have, what have you learned about mentoring as you've gone through your journey as a leader, for want of a better phrase? Yeah, so the, I can't say that I did a course on how to be a mentor or, or, you know, any kind of teaching or development training, you know, program or something like that. So it has taken a while to sort of fine tune. And I think where we've got at this stage, we've been developing a program for the last sort of four years, I suppose. At this stage, I think it is a step or a stage where we understand that what the environment that we need to provide is a safe place, a patient place. We're like we are patient with our clinicians. So they can ask us questions about anything. And sometimes you might laugh at the type of question. It's, you know, you can't help but laugh at some of the things we get asked. But they have to feel safe that they can ask whatever they want and we'll provide the answer if we can. The other thing is is understanding the somewhat, I don't know, the terminology for it, be like the expert mindset where you feel like as if or you know the particular field that you work in like I feel very comfortable with ultrasound. And when you're training someone who hasn't had very much ultrasound experience, not you, you don't just have to be patient, but you have to actually acknowledge that you forgot what it was like to learn something from the start. And taking that step back and really just being with that and understanding that this is challenging for them. It's like learning to walk, but you can walk fine. You don't remember what it's like to try to walk. So, and then from there, there's a big emphasis on client communication, the consultation process. It's not just a matter of, this is the disease process. You need to go back and talk to Mrs. Smith about these three things and then tell her how much these three things are going to cost and then come back, let me know how she, you know, what questions she has. It's building a relationship with your client, expressions of empathy checking in to see if they understand what you're talking about, trying to understand what their expectations are. So their expectation for a process or the content like for what's going on with the dog could be completely different to what you think, you know, their expectation is or what their main concern is could be completely different to what actually your main concern is. And in a prime example is a cocker spaniel that came through a couple of years back. And I remember this one because I use it as an example, came in because the owner's um, accidentally clipped off a bit of skin when they were clipping off a mat. And as part of a full physical exam, I realized that the actual patient was jaundice. And the biggest concern then was for me, it was like IMHA or something, some kind of hemolytic process or liver disease or something. And it actually took quite a while for me to address their concern of this small cut. And then build on that and go, actually, my main concern, I think this is completely incidental, but what we have going on here is some kind of significant underlying disease that is not manifested yet. So developing a safe place, being patient, understanding that they're learning to walk, and then emphasizing the importance of client communication 
I could keep on talking about this. Then the other aspect of that is building resilience. Resilience is incredibly difficult, and it's a hard concept to to even understand or even try to build. And I feel that there's a balance there. Sometimes the vets that we are mentoring have the capability, but then they don't have the the mindset behind it. So sometimes you've got to hold them up with a bit of love, hold them up with support, be right there behind them, watch them as they close the abdomen stitch by stitch. But then sometimes it's like you might need to give them a bit of a slap. It's like, hey, you got this. You understand what you're doing. You know, wake up. Come on, I'm not going to hold your hand here. I'll be in the next room. If you need me, you yell. I'll be there. But you got this. So putting them out there and letting them walk themselves. That's a super interesting area. And, you know, this process of adult learning, I find very, very fascinating. And I use the word adult very loosely. So I'm going to briefly paint a picture as to how I am sort of viewing things at the moment. I'm really interested in what your perspective on that is. And the the observations that I've been making over the last couple of years are that resilience in, and I don't think it's necessarily just vets. I just, I think generationally there is a, a challenge with, there's an interface challenge between, you probably, you will have an interesting perspective on this because I think you and I are of slightly different vintages. You know, I graduated in 1998 and, and you're 2008, right? So it'll be very interesting to hear your perspective on leadership from there. But vets nowadays, like when I graduated, and perhaps this is a reflection on my time at university, like I knew I was as dumb as a rock. And my adult learning, <laughs> it, it began- I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh there, Dave. <laughs> no, no, no. You caused me no offense if you did. Because it's true. And I, I borrow that phrase from Dr. Sue Ettinger, who was on the podcast on episode four. And I love that phrase. And it's quite a harsh phrase, but I'm, I'm willing to use it in reference to myself. You know, I wasn't unconsciously incompetent. I was consciously incompetent. I knew I was dumb as a rock. And I also knew, like, you know, your journey through your university career is a very, very stratospheric one compared to mine. I spent most of my time either playing rugby or you know, or enjoying the social side and, and was never a high fly. I'm never an academic achiever, never ever going to be in that top sort of quarter, 10%, frankly, even half of the class. You probably had a better journey than what I did. <laughs> well, and perhaps a different one, but I felt like a fish out of water for most of it until I got in the exam room. And then as soon as I had to engage with real human beings, I knew I had not made a mistake choosing my career. But up until that point, I wasn't completely certain of that, that fact. Now, Adult learning, from my perspective, requires us to know we're really not very good at something and to have that self-awareness to then go, all right, so I, I actually suck at that. And sometimes you learn it the hard way because you try it and then it goes wrong. And then other times you're already aware that you know this complex, comminuted, open fracture is really not a good one for me to kick off my orthopedic career with. That's obvious. But then there are other times, you know, in medicine cases and scanning where you can really get in pretty deep, pretty fast, both clinically and financially and wind up in a challenging position. Or you can do your best clinically and then the client still gets super annoyed at you for something because you you missed off the one, like the cut in the Cocker Spaniel. You know, you, you think, yeah, I saved his life and you're high-fiving yourself and the client writes a complaint letter because, you know, you didn't stitch the dog's ear kind of thing. You know, so those things are always challenging. And, and what my observation is that 
students coming out or into the world today either struggle with their awareness that actually this is a challenging job, which you there is no way five years at university makes you great at. It gets you to the start line and what you've learned to do is pass exams and you can talk the language, but you really aren't ready to be a vet at this point. You are relatively incompetent. We call it day one competencies, which I think is a highly ironic thing for universities or our boards to call anything when you graduate university. And then you start learning at that point, but you need to know you're not very good at something. So if you don't know that and then you fail, your ego or your self-esteem takes a knock and then you need to have resilience or awareness to then go, okay, so that didn't work. So what happened? What can I learn? How can I move forward? So what is your observation? Like that's my observation is that students struggle with that now or not students, but young veterinarians are struggling with that. They have something bad happen. And then that next step of, okay, that I failed at that. So what can I learn? That bit seems to be missing. Or there's a fear of doing something that maybe is ingrained from college or university or from whatever, that then they won't take the action that maybe results in the failure. And I'm imagining in critical care, the stakes are a little higher. Like failing at giving a vaccine is very different to failing at performing uh, pericardiosynthesis. <laughs> it's a higher price of failure. What are you seeing playing out in your world? And are you seeing any similar sort of things? Do you disagree, agree? Give me your thoughts on that. This might be the longest question I've ever asked, mate. So we might just have broken a record. Yeah, I'll try and break it down. So as part of trying to build resilience in our veterinarians, the one thing I think I spend quite a lot of time, and Alex, business partner, partner, also spends quite a lot of time doing this as well. But one thing I think, think I spend quite a lot of time with or doing is putting things into perspective. So fine, they they might fail at something, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're a failure. They might have a bad day at work, but it's not a bad month and a bad year, you know, or they might get a complaint letter, but then they forget that they saw 150 patients that month. You know, you put things into perspective, one complaint you know, it'd be great to never have any complaints, right? But I think bringing things back to reality and not dramatizing things. When you add drama to it, then all of a sudden things start to escalate and then you start to fear things. You start to play things back through your mind. You start to dread things, those situations. I can't do that ever again, Gerard. I can't do that ever again. That's the kind of time when, I don't know, I call it a, a shake-up or a slap, something that's kind of like, hey, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. So a pattern yeah. interrupt almost at that point just to go, yeah. that's, that's a story. So there is a truth here, but now there's a story that's maybe not a truth. Yeah. What is the story? What is the facts? Let's go back to the facts. And even then, sometimes the facts that they think are facts aren't facts. So that's anyway, a whole different, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you can go forever there. But the other thing is what I try to emphasize is that we've all been there. We've all failed at something. Right. Everyone fails at something. We all aim for success, but we are okay with failure. Or at least you've got to be okay with failure. It's not like as if you just brush things off and like, oh, I got failed every now and then and it's okay. You have to learn. You have to be able to process what's happened. What can I take from that? How can I be better? So one of the things that my interns and I sometimes say to each other, and we say this to each other because you know, I'm still learning as well, is that, look, you just got to be better. And that's, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but sometimes it's like on the phone, I'm like, okay, 
you, you can do this. And then they will say to themselves, okay, I'm just going to be better. So it doesn't mean that actually they're failing. It just means that they're in a process of learning and that actually there is continual improvement. And then they'll tell me, you just could be better. And I'll be like, fine, yeah, I'll take that. You know, you know so, so I'm learning do, as well. How do we help people in all facets of the profession? Since this is a global thing, we're clearly talking about a principle that applies across the board here, not just to ECC work. How do we help people fail safely? And should we stop using the word fail? Because maybe the word setback or learning experience might be more appropriate. But how, from your perspective, would you think we can help people fail more safely? You know, keep talking, like what ways? Because you sound like you've got some really interesting thoughts on this. What other ways do you help to do that? And maybe again, you know, we've talked about ultrasound. And by the way, I love your posts on Instagram where you sort of document out with the stories, you know, you step out a case. It's really interesting. Like the Doberman that you had on there with DCM, like for students, like that would teach, as a student, I would learn more from that than from a textbook ever, you know, just as a very visual learners. I thought that was awesome just as a sidebar, but using maybe ultrasound as, as that's one of your interest areas, how do you help somebody acquire the skills and embrace those moments of growth, of learning, of failing in a safe way that, that they keep at it? Yeah. So I suppose the environment that we try to create in our hospital is an environment of learning. So it's stressful enough as it is, you know, they, you don't know, there's no set appointments, anything can walk through the door. Sometimes we don't even get notifications or even a phone call. All of a sudden we hear the doorbell, there's hit by a car dog. So everyone feels out of their depth and I feel out of my depth sometimes on shifts as well. And sometimes multiple times on shifts. So we are always, I suppose, the environment in our hospital is an environment of learning and continuing professional development. And all of our veterinarians at some stage will go through a master's or go through their memberships in emergency critical care. Some are actually training for the fellowships. So that environment of learning is really helpful because it almost sets up the premise that it's not necessarily failure, but when you miss something, it's a process of learning. So we never look at it and go, oh, you failed to find that left adrenal or something like that, or you failed to see that that mass in the liver. Well, you know, let's put things in perspective. You know, this is your third ultrasound, okay? So we, we create the environment where someone always checks. Quite often, actually, in the middle of the night, I'll get phone calls and I'll FaceTime or Facebook Messenger ultrasounds, so like video conference and ultrasound. And – what we try to emphasize is a systematic approach. And a systematic approach applies to not just ultrasound, but also to physical examinations, to x-ray interpretation, systematic approach, step-by-step -step process, where if you can, as a new graduate, as a new veterinarian to ultrasound, if you can look at everything and make sure you see everything, then what happens is you won't miss things from a lack of knowledge. You'll miss things because you haven't looked. So if you have a systematic approach, you'll always see something. So very rarely do I feel that our clinicians feel like they're failing because they don't have the skill set to do something. They want to get better, but we create the environment that they appreciate that it takes time to get better. So there's a growth mindset there trying to see that things are, these challenges that we see now in our hospital are challenges for growth and learning as opposed to challenges that are intimidating and, how would you say, make you want to crawl up in a ball and cry in the corner. 
<laughs> okay, so two sub questions there, and you mentioned feeling, you know, regularly feeling overwhelmed yourself. How do you cope with that sense so that you can continue to function in the moment? And also cumulatively, if that's happening a lot, how do you then manage your own internal dialogue, thought processes, feelings such that you continue to turn up to work each day? Do you have any tips or advice on those things? So the classic, I suppose, situation where I feel overwhelmed is when I'm providing clinical advice and then I'm the kind of guy where I can only have one conversation at a time. So That sounds like most of us guys. (laughs) So, And I think it infuriates quite a lot of people in, in my workplace. So the classic example would be a triage patient coming in the doorbell ring. So we have a doorbell. One ding is a not so critical patient. Two dings is like, you know, somewhat more critical. If it dings a lot, then we need a whole entire team there because we're about to do CPR. So in the middle of a conversation discussing a, a case, we might have a couple, you know, a, a ding go and then a patient turn up on our crash bench and then we triage. But then the ding might go again. But then a clinician might come over and go, just one question about fluids on this patient here. So then what happens is my brain just starts off, whoa, whoa, whoa. I realize and I pick up early when I'm not handling the situation. And I go, okay, okay, team, I, I need to stop. First, you know, this patient here, he needs pain relief. It doesn't look like it's, you know, cardiovascularly unstable. It's breathing okay. Give us some pain relief and then we'll watch it. Okay, fluids, what's wrong with you? Like, so I, I try to break it down step by step. And that's the only way that I can process that without being overwhelmed. It's not to say that I don't get tired. Definitely after a 16-hour shift of having to invest brain space in multiple patients as well as my own, I walk out of the hospital feeling as if I've just been run over or something like that mentally. You know, I don't want to speak to anyone and I do seek solitude. But I feel that self-awareness of when I'm reaching my capacity and then communicating that to my team is really important. So it stops me from becoming overwhelmed. And overwhelming a lot of people looks like angry or, you know, outbursts or, or shutdown or just escape and, you know, exit stage left, which I'm sure is mm. a helpful thing for teams to view. So really deal with one problem at a time. Yeah, and, that's what I try to do. And prioritize those problems. For younger vets listening there, how and maybe this is we'll come on to the book in a little bit i don't want to dive down that rabbit hole right away but prioritization under pressure again seems to be something and perhaps this is a a suitable moment to segue into a little conversation about students and graduates and new graduate vets i think these two topics are really very overlapping they seem to struggle with critical decision-making and maybe another word we could use there is logical decision-making. That for your line of work particularly, where you have to make decisions fairly quickly, you don't have that luxury of time a lot of occasions. Are you seeing that as a challenge? And, and that's a subsection of a bigger question, which is what are we training our graduates well in right now? And what are we training them badly in or not training them in what we ought to be? Hmm. The decision-making process is very difficult and it really, I think, comes down to the kind of style or person you are. So there are clinicians in our hospital who are very analytical. What they will do is they will 
have all the facts and they'll play it in their mind and they'll say it out and then they will ask a question and then they'll ask another question without answering the first question. That's their way of processing. So they analyze everything. That's not a wrong thing to do. It just means that they have to go through a process to be able to get to a decision. And what they may struggle with is actually making the call. What do we do now? They get paralyzed by indecisiveness. And is that overload of information or lack of a critical bit of information they feel is necessary to make that decision? Yeah. So sometimes it's overload of information. So, and we see it in our clinicians who, so it's, it's like your blind spot. If you didn't know that information to begin with, then it was never there to influence your decision-making process now. So you've got a patient who came in into and it was crashing and it would look like it was in shock. If you knew, like if, if the two pieces of information that you had were, one, you've got to rule out congestive heart failure or cardiogenic shock. And the second thing is fluids, right? It's pretty easy. You just go, well, it doesn't have cardiogenic shock. Let's get fluids. But then if you're undergoing some kind of traineeship or training towards um, sitting your memberships in emergency critical care, then what happens is you start to learn more. You start to process more. And all of a sudden, this patient who's coming in in shock, you start going, well, actually, what kind of fluids do I need to address its shock? Is it crystalloids? Could I grab colloids? Could I grab some hypertonic saline? Could I grab some blood products? And then, then they'll think, well, what are the indications or contraindications of each of those things? Then the next step. So you can see how knowledge then actually somewhat empowers them, but also somewhat paralyzes them. So and it can take a while for them to actually start applying that knowledge in real life. Then what happens is that decision-making process becomes a lot quicker, somewhat. So there's a cognitive load that just gets, you know, you eventually have to thin slice some of it and go, this becomes my pattern. Mm. And therefore I can function based on smaller amounts of input data. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you said pattern and I was about to say pattern matching. So it kind of is. And sometimes, you know, like we teach new veterinarians to work work off a problem list because of the lack of experience and the lack of the hunch, I suppose. You know, so for me, you you can call it pattern matching. For me, it's kind of like, what does my gut feel? So I can roll with the decision going, for this patient, I think we need to do this. And quite often when I am providing clinical advice for someone, it's not that they don't know what they need to do. It's just that they can't make that call. And quite often the decision that they come to me, I go, what do you want to do? What's your thought? They'll go, I think we need to do x-rays next because my concern is this. That's exactly what I do. Go do it. So it's sometimes making the call and dealing with the consequences of that call are the most important thing. And I will back a clinician in our hospital who's made the call on something based on the information that they have in that particular situation. And yeah, I'd feel that making the call can be difficult. And and in hindsight, when you talk through a process, maybe they made the wrong call, but that's a process of learning. And I think I would rather them make a call then have decision paralysis and, and watch a patient die. Right. And that loops back to how we help people fail safely and how we respond to those decisions that they make, right? Which is interesting. Well, that's, so we've got some roads starting to map back to each other here and pathways that, that sound interesting. I'm curious, 
How do you find, and I've heard this from a lot of practitioners, again, in the general practice space, where you know, a skill like ultrasound, uh, similarly with surgery, perhaps you have an opinion on this, Gerardo, one of the big drivers, the macros that's occurring in our industry is corporatization. And one of the stories, and I'm, I'm using that word very, very purposely, I'm not claiming this is reality, this could be fiction, but one of the stories and observations, stories I've heard and observations I've made is that certain skills seem to be in decline in general practice. Surgery certainly is higher up that list. And my evidence for making that statement is from the sorts of questions. I have good friends who are boarded surgeons and they say the sorts of questions they're now being asked, as much as also the cases they're being referred, are of so much more of a junior level than they used to see. So they're being referred cases that general practitioners would once have done, and they're being asked questions about cases that really they would never have been asked once upon a time because you know the previous generation, if you like, would have known that. And my hypothesis here is that we're losing, and again, if I stick with surgery for a second, people are now, you know, the, the traditional entry point to surgery and, and development of those skills, for me, certainly was uh, neutering. And so you would learn how to open an abdomen, approach an abdomen, and, and have a wand around the abdomen by doing that surgery, close an abdomen the same way. But now a lot of that, that work is done in low-cost pain-neuter clinics, and early neutering and rescue centers is having an impact on there as well. So there's less of that occurring. The next thing that you require after your basic skills is a, is a caseload, which comes down to you generating that caseload, so communicating in the exam room, finding the problems, communicating the, the solutions. And then the third thing you really need is a mentor, a skilled mentor that can hold your hand and allow you to fail safely and be there to have your back. Now, one of the chat like i don't think our vets receive great communications training i don't think they ever have those so i don't think that's necessarily a change there's certainly a decrease that i've observed in the the time in the number of the entry level points to surgery style cases coming in the door and there's i think a, an increasing loss of mentorship ability within or capability within the profession as the senior vets who would once have been those mentors are selling to corporate practices and are now disengaging with the profession in a way that's different if we had partnerships still. So partnership structure, a younger vet might buy in and be you know be there and work with those guys for a while and, and transfer skills. Or if you're a junior vet starting out, you would have a senior vet who had 20 years of experience, 30 years of experience under the belt who was guiding you. Now within corporate practice, you've got graduates who are two, three, four years experienced. And with respect, there's no way I could have been a, a good surgeon or a good diagnostician in that time. It just takes longer to develop those core skills. Like, And so bringing this back to ultrasound now, I have wasted on ultrasound training courses an awful lot of continuing education budget for the teams that I've managed over the years for very, very little reward. So you have to have a team that's capable of doing ultrasound. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, Gerardo's going to go crazy because he's the guy who can be the only one doing the ultrasounds. How do you then manage that skill transfer in a timely fashion? Have you found ways to accelerate that? Or do you have programs? Like, how do you manage that skill transfer so that you maintain that competency within your organization? So empowering people with knowledge and skills is incredibly important. And I suppose 
in corporate environments, there may not be that, I suppose, the push and the drive for that because they could replace that inexperienced veterinarian with another veterinarian, right? Or they may even have referring practices or they might even own the large referring hospital. So the push is to push just surgical caseload or ultrasounds to those particular hospitals to, you know, to generate revenue or something like that. So we are a privately owned company and we spend quite a lot of time. Well, I, I suppose one step back, the two founding partners, Robin Simon, they found themselves in a situation where they were the only ones that were capable at certain things. So then they had to be there. They had to be there all the time. Then what happened was that they then realized that they needed to create the space for other people. So then hence Alex and I stepped in there. And what we found was that we didn't needed to create the space for other people. So there is a certain maybe fundamental want or need to be the hero, to be the person who can like Gerardo can come in and save the day. He can do that surgery. He can do that ultrasound. But what is even more powerful is if we can empower them to have those skill sets. It builds on their career. It adds variation to what they do, builds their skill set, adds confidence. So it only actually makes a team stronger. So creating the space for them, but also and be willing to invest time. Invest time in training and literally what I do is I watch them do systematic ultrasounds and critique step-by-step the process. What we try to do is we structure our shifts so that, or the roster, so there is a senior clinician on each night. They then mentor and train veterinarians who are new to ultrasound. So we have a support structure there. So they feel like as if they can do an ultrasound and then have someone check that ultrasound to make sure everything's okay. And what I'll do is I will push people to do ultrasounds themselves rather than actually getting me to do it because it's easier. So try to, can you do this ultrasound, please? And I'm like, no, you do the ultrasound, I'll watch you. Making sure that they do it, so me sitting there watching them do an ultrasound that might take half an hour, an hour, is actually a great investment in time and an investment in their own skill set. So I suppose having the patience, building the support structure, creating the caseload through making them feel comfortable that if they did do it, then they would be back up. Okay. And so that seems really sensible. So you teach them basic principles, then you allow them the opportunity and support them and push back and make sure that they understand they have a responsibility to learn this and then give them critique and critical feedback. So that all sounds super smart. And I know the next question is going to the lips of the listeners to the podcast it's going to be, well, that's a big investment in time. I don't think anyone could argue that that's a sensible thing to do. Like invest the time, people are going to upskill. They're going to appreciate that. Then the problem that I think we start running into are then, okay, so what happens when that person leaves, you know, before you've had the payback on that time? And so my mm. question really is, how do you find retention within, I can imagine that being within the emergency critical care space, There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of high-paced decision-making. There's long hours. There's almost certainly an increase in compassion fatigue with the the sorts. And I've heard this phrase mentioned, and I I can see 
wise mention and I, I feel like it could be applicable. But, you know, PTSD in soldiers, you know, is well documented, but in clinicians, medical and otherwise in veterinary, we see some crazy stuff like stuff you, like normal people don't have to see and, and we assume that's normal but it's not normal to see dogs pasted up and down roads and bits hanging out of them and so there's that sort of melting pot of pressure and emotional impact how do you manage retention within your businesses and how do we manage retention in veterinary industry generally and in, in practice generally so as we get a payback on that investment do you have any thoughts on that yeah So my first question then would be, if you didn't invest in your staff, what happens if that person you didn't invest in and try and upskill decides to stay for the next 10 years? (laughs) I love it, yeah. So then you have someone who is not skilled, hasn't been trained, and could be a big sinker, I suppose, the dragging weight in your team. So... Investing and trying to upskill everyone, I think, is really important. Regardless of whether or not you think they're going to stay or go, the biggest concern I have is what happens if that vet decides that this career is for them and they want to stay. Then it's like, holy shit, I need to start training you up. So if we're going to invest in everyone, then everyone feels like as if they need to upskill. So there's some kind of like, I don't want to be left behind. I want to be good at ultrasound too. Please show me this ultrasound. I want to do this surgery. I haven't done it before. Will you be here if the surgery comes through? Will someone be here? Yeah, for sure. So in terms of retention, I think upskilling our veterinarians so that they feel more competent and comfortable with what they see when it comes through the door is really important. Adding to their skill sets, they feel like as if they can do more things. But also the kind of leadership that our company is progressing towards is somewhat of creating a space and environment that is conducive for our staff. So instead of being a leader and going, you vet, you need to do this, it's like, okay, how can I empower you to be able to do that? What do you need from me? You know, what am I not providing you? So the first question I ask myself if, if anything goes wrong is actually what role have I played in that situation there? If the, the veterinarian has performed a surgery and hasn't done it quite well, then I can't exactly get up them, I suppose, or get angry at them if I haven't then trained them in that particular situation for that contingency. So then I spend quite a lot of time actually self-reflecting on, you know, what haven't I done to create a space where, that vet needed what they had, what they needed, or had the support that they needed. So I suppose servitude leadership in a sense, actually, I'm here to service, provide them with what they need to be able to do the job that they can and want or what I expect them to do. You've mentioned creating space a couple of times. What specifically do you do to create that space? Because that's like in the crazy of clinical, that's one of all of our biggest challenges, Mm. right? So creating a space, I suppose, is is a phrase that my partner and I use quite frequently, and maybe it's it's something that, you know, it's not commonly used the way that we use it. But but I love it. As a leader, I suppose, I mean I want to move on to things. You know, I feel like as if my purpose in life changes all the time. 
You know, I, I don't feel like as if I have this one purpose and my purpose is this. I wouldn't, you know, when I reflect back on my, my career, I totally would not have expected me to be where I am now. So if I want to create the space for me to be able to grow into the future, right, I don't know where that may be, then I need to create the space for someone behind me to be able to do the things that I do. So I need to create the space for them. I need to empower them, give them what they need. But then one important thing about creating the space, I don't want to say that phrase again, is actually letting go. So you can't go, okay, this is your job now. I used to do this. You can train everyone on ultrasound. But I'll be right there next to you and actually interrupting you every three seconds because you're not training in the way that I want you to train them, right? So have to, have to let go and be okay with that outcome. You know, what this particular person, their style, their style of teaching might be completely better than mine. They might be able to train veterinarians in two months as opposed to a year on how to do, you know, good ultrasounds, right? But I have to let go of what I've handed over and then be okay with what that looks like at the end. So control freaks beware. Yeah, exactly right. So otherwise you stay in your rut, you stay in your particular little, I don't know, niche and you don't grow yourself. And then what happens is your team below you don't feel like there's any space for them to grow. There's nowhere for them to go. I'm going to be stuck doing an emergency clinician for the rest of my life. You know, that, that's a bit daunting. But if they see that actually Gerardo is moving on, he's doing this, then maybe I get to be the director or the managing veterinarian clinical provider for Underwood and, and the new vets coming through to Underwood and Jindalee hospitals. So, yeah, creating the space. Essentially, I, I don't know how else to summarize that, but letting go, really. No, I love it. I think you've done an, a really good job shining a light on that there. It makes a whole lot of sense. Now, one last question on this area generally, but what do you do to keep happy yourself and manage that compassion fatigue? And what do you do for the people around you? I know that mental health in our industry is something that's very important to you. So I'm curious as to your, your processes or actions in that regard. For me, managing compassion fatigue for myself and remaining happy is about perspective and not dramatizing stories. So it's really sad. And I, in the euthanasia process, I still get sad somewhat with euthanasias. And I put it in perspective in a sense that I am providing a service. I am providing a form of treatment, I suppose, for patients in need. So, and that form of treatment may be euthanasia of the, the patient that I'm treating. So I don't try to add much more to that. I don't look at it and go, I should be a better veterinarian because I should be able to treat this thing right now. If the owners have made a decision to humane euthanize, then, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, I try not to add too much to that. I try to stop the cycle of, of dramatization and generating story and, and getting worked up in emotion. Getting on the ghost train. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
So that's mentally managing yourself. Are there any other ways mm. that you found to be useful in in helping to manage your mental states? Either uh, you know, a lot of people have hobbies or mm. exercise or regimes or diets or meditation. Are there mm. any things there that you found to be effective? Two things, I suppose. One other, which is possibly a mental thing, is based on, I suppose, the phrase or the saying of what you allow to persist, persists. So if you are stressed by a particular situation and you allow that to occur and you don't take action on addressing it, then what happens is that affects my happiness. You know, So I don't like to leave things undone or let things dwell. I like to address the concerns that they have to try to move on. Move on, move forward. Having said that, the other aspect in terms of physical health, I do exercise a lot. At the moment, I'm going through a a sort of a challenge, I suppose, an eight-week challenge, and I probably would spend close to maybe two hours a day exercising, um, apart from maybe Saturday or Sunday or something like that. So I do spend quite a lot of time actually physically training, and I find that you know, I make a lot of decisions every day and I do get decision fatigue and having that outlet where I have no other choice but to do this and then this physically exhausts me, then it kind of resets my body to then deal with, you know, the things that are coming along. So I use exercise a lot to actually help me reset. Then I suppose the other thing is I suppose being good to myself, being okay that you know I can splurge here or acknowledge my achievements and being okay with rewarding myself. So that is, I think that leads very nicely into some of my short form questions, actually. But before we do that, I want to, to hold that thought. <laughs> I'm going to ask you what the coolest thing you bought recently for yourself was. So to answer that just now, I want to just talk to you about the Mini Vet Guide because I think it's a wonderful resource. My first question actually for you on that is my observation again that vets tend not to like being told what to do. You know, the guise of clinical freedom is spoken often and sort of cherished by a lot. And I wonder if that's actually another word for ego, not, you know, whereas, you know, we know from an evidence-based perspective that and also from research in the human field that you know that there are certain ways of doing things that if either they're they're the most advanced techniques that have been shown to be effective or they're the techniques that are just the easiest to perform that you can do again and again and again and again and really get very effective at that particular skill that are going to have great outcomes for the patients but you know as well as I do that there are a million different variations in a way that you can neuter a dog or place an IV or perform a scan. And a lot of the time, the way we learn is simply by the way we were first taught. So whatever our first boss told us to do is the way that we learn. And then we move to another practice and then it's a different way. And then there's conflict starts creeping in in that moment. So your book is highly structured. And I have to say, so I I know the backstory and correct me if I'm wrong, that the book started out as a collection of your study notes for your exams that then people were clearly impressed by because you're a smart cookie. 
And and I have to say, if if anyone had ever like looked at my study notes, a if I'd have published that book, it would have been a lot smaller. <laughs> And B, it would have needed some serious peer review to even get close to being published. And and that would have been wise. But so it started out, if I have heard the story correctly, as a basic set of your study notes that then became very accessible for people. So then people in your class wanted it. And then it started spreading out from there to other vet schools. And and so then you expanded it into to what is now the mini, mini vet guide. First question, is that what happened? And second question is being well received clearly in a space where when you ask people to do things in a certain way, it's so hard to get 15 vets to agree on anything that, that then approaches a clinical protocol. So the follow-on question from that, as the author of the mini vet guide, how proceduralized is the environment in which you work in every day? Do you have standards of care? And what's been the effective way of getting them created if indeed you do have those? To be honest, we have very little standards of care. So in our hospital, there's so many ways that you can manage a patient, especially the lethargic patient. One of the ones where, you know, it's where do we start here? Right, it's such a big bucket. Yeah, that's right. So during the the mentoring phase of, of our inductees or intern veterinarians, we actually focus primarily on developing a problem list. Then from that problem list, what is the most localizing problem with the shortest list of, list of differentials? Then what diagnostic test would be the best one for that? Or even so, what is the main body system that's affected? If the patient's breathing up a storm, I think maybe we should take an x-ray. Right. Yeah. So really try to break it down into, into that. And then there are a couple principles that I try to, I suppose, embed in our veterinarians' minds. And one is, if you're going to do a biochemistry, do a urinalysis at the same time. Right. You know, how are you going to interpret the kidney enzymes if you don't have a USG or something along those lines? Got it. Second thing is, I suppose, just trying to think of all the, how would you say, clinical protocols, there really isn't that many clinical protocols. We have a standard way of, I suppose, treating a tick paralysis patient. Right. But even then, there are contingencies and contingencies. So quite frequently, the discussion that we will have is when re- with regards to a patient that may be in hospital that you know not going the right way or something, very rarely is it actually, well, you didn't follow the protocol. It's more so because there isn't a protocol for that. So fluid therapy, though, there is somewhat of a protocol, but it's a sort of baseline sort of thought processes. You know, is the patient in cardiogenic shock? No. Is the patient in shock? Yes. Fluids are indicated then. And then the next step is what kind of fluids? But having said that, if you can't make the call, give crystalloids, 10 millipicular bolus, reassess. So there are general principles. So we focus on principles and diagnostic pathways as opposed to a blocked cat comes in, it needs these things. Right, so principles versus protocols, and Mm. that helps you function. That's an interesting insight. It also creates a space to learn from what they're doing because if you create a, a clinical protocol, then what happens is it might narrow down their learning process. Right. And so there's, on one hand, you've got the ability to maintain quality, 
But then in the mm. downside, you're the restriction of independent free thinking when things are off piste is diminished. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then, and they feel like as if yeah they can't make a call on things. They don't have a, a say in in that particular situation. So, with regards to the book, the book is actually there, I suppose, to be a resource for students and newly graduated veterinarians who don't know where to start. Yeah. The most important aspect of the book is the flowcharts, which are problem based. So, if you do a physical exam, go through history, and the problem is pale gums, then go through that process, go through the flowchart. Flowchart will talk you through sort of the causes and then diagnostics involved in that. Then you can go to the specific chapter on that particular problem and then have more information about the main differentials for that particular problem. So and in there, there are, there, I suppose, there are some clinical protocols in a sense, guidelines as to where to start. I generally make it so that they're traditional protocols. So if we can finish up, I'm going to be, as ever, respectful of time. Um, My wandering questions do tend to lead to extended lengthy conversations. Your answers are pretty good for the next half an hour. So, (laughs) All right, good. I I won't take up that much time, I promise (laughs) you. Well, actually, this is going to be down to you. The next question, so... We sort of move into our uh, shorter form questions. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to start out, look back to what you said before about rewarding yourself and ask you, what, so what's the most recent thing you purchased that you're just getting a lot of joy out of that you rewarded yourself with? And why is it giving you that much joy? I know if Alex is listening, my partner is listening to this conversation, she would know exactly what that would be. And I don't know if I should say what it is. I, I feel like I have this kind of humbling feel and I, I am quite, how would you say, ashamed, I suppose. Maybe ashamed is not a good word, but I do feel a bit conscious about the success that I've had. And it is quite difficult for me sometimes to accept where things have gone. So like the book is, has been an unexpected success. And having said that, it's taken hours and hours and years and years of continuing education and thousands and thousands of dollars of my own money in terms of developing and marketing and so forth. So, but, you know, I bought a new car and I really love my new car. And I could think of just trying to think of something smaller than my new car. (laughs) (laughs) Well, two questions. How many copies have you now sold of the book? So in terms of how many countries it's been sold over, it's North America, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Europe. It's pretty popular in Eastern Europe. Portugal's giving us quite a lot of grief. Their postal service is incredibly poor. <laughs> I spend quite a lot of, of my own money actually reposting books out that just they get rejected for some reason. And I never have the heart to actually charge postage again when it's not our fault. But Asia... South Africa, South America. It's kind of gone all the way around the world, but the main markets are North America, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. So in terms of how many books, to be honest, I don't know. It's somewhere around about maybe over 13,000 or something like that. So, And the reason why I don't really know is because I never used to track it. 
it's a pretty good number for for your course notes, mate. I don't think there's many <laughs> many people on the planet could say that, right? So my course notes started at at seventy pages, and now it's like three hundred and sixty, and it's grown over sort of oh gosh, ten years, and grown a lot in terms of what I needed to be able to get through my days in the hospital. Right. Okay. Mm. So, and the car, what was the car? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not letting you get away from that. Am I? <laughs> it's nothing that flash. It's, it's an Audi. I got a new Audi. So nice. And the reason why I got it is because I'm a terrible driver. <laughs> so, and this thing keeps me alive <laughs> and it keeps me on the road, has, you know, sensors that keep me straight on the road. And has um, my mind thinks as I drive, I think about things. So, and what happens is I am a, not a very attentive driver. So, in order to in, to in, increase my longevity on this earth, I think one of the highest risk factors for a shorter lifespan was the car that I drove in. So, it was an investment somewhat. <laughs> We're glad you're risk managing, Gerardo. We don't want you to. Uh... <laughs> to end up another tragic statistic on the road. Okay, so what was the best piece of advice you have ever given or received? That's part A. And then what was, on the flip side, what was the worst piece of advice you've ever given or received? Mm, the best, maybe not advice, but it, the best thing someone's told me was a character assessment. And they told me that one of my key strengths is capability. So I have this strength, which is that I feel capable about doing things, you know, like I'm self-aware enough to go, okay, no, I can't do a spinal surgery. So, you know, so I'm capable with the things that I feel comfortable with, I suppose. But then what happens, it creates this feeling that I can do, or I should be able to do something new, something different. So what happens then is it becomes my biggest weakness. My biggest weakness is the fact that I will say yes to things that will require me to build a lot of capability to be able to do that successfully. That creates a lot of stress. Not only that, I will say yes to things and overload myself. So what is my strength ends up being my weakness. And when someone told me that, you know, it's maybe not advice, but it's when they told me that you are a capable person and explained what that meant, I actually think about that a lot when it comes to new ideas that are generated, new directions to go down. And am I just saying yes because I'm capable or am I actually saying yes because I really want to do that? Okay, next question. And what would the title of your TED Talk be? <laughs> what would the title of my TED Talk be? It would be something along the lines of life is a roller coaster. Live learn, love, and respect. I love it. And aside from the mini vet guide to companion animal medicine, what's your favorite tool or app or book that helps you get stuff done? You can give all three if you want. Mm. My favorite book would have to be, let me make sure I get the title right, Small Animal Critical Care Medicine by Silverstein and Hopper. So, this is one of our core books that we refer to quite frequently, especially with critical care patients in a hospital. A book that I've read recently, which actually is 
influenced quite a lot in terms of where we're heading our hospital. And my thought process is actually a book by Simon Sinek, and it actually is still in my bag. It's called Start With Why. And the importance of actually, I suppose, empowering the people with the why, because everything else, if they don't understand that, is a form of manipulation, which is somewhat scary. When I read the book, I was like, oh, my God, I've been manipulating people left, right, and center. That's a great book. I like that book. Mm-hmm. If you could give yourself one piece of advice back in 2008 at your graduation ceremony, if you could go back in a time machine and just appear in front of you then, what would that piece of advice be? If I could tell myself back then that being capable was my strength and my biggest weakness, I probably wouldn't have been able to actually sort of process that. I would have been like, eh, whatever. I think I would have done some things differently, I suppose, and had a bit more balance. So up until now, I spent a lot of work and so a lot of my time working, developing my career and and investing in my career in terms of continuing professional development and actually just, I suppose, business development too. And now I'm at a stage where it's like, I think I could have had more balance. I don't know what I've been like, but it would have been more no's and being okay with saying no, as opposed to feeling like as if I should say yes, because I feel capable. It almost sounds like you're telling yourself to say, take your time, you'll get there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's the feeling of not everything has to happen right now. All right. Last question. What's the most controversial thing people don't know about you, but really matters? It would have to be that I seek solitude. You said that I come, Yeah, I, I come across somewhat as an extroverted person, but I actually think that I am – I get to the point where I need space. And that's not just space from the clinic or space from my family or something. It's space from everything. I don't know what I do in that time. Most times it's pottering around, just processing things. But I think it makes me look like a hermit. It makes me feel like as if I'm a hermit, but actually seeking solitude is is something that I think a lot of people don't know about me. Fantastic. Gerardo, I'm not going to take up any more of your time just now. It's been fantastic speaking with you. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot, and I thank you very much for your time. If people wish to, and I strongly advise everybody does, pick up a copy of the Minivet Guide to Companion Animal Medicine. Where's the best place to do that? And if you want people to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Where can they find out more about Gerardo Poli? Yeah, so where to get the book would be on the website, www.minivetguide.com. And in terms of getting in contact with me, actually, Facebook, Dr. Gerardo Poli, is where I get quite a lot of inquiries and quite a lot of questions about things. And, and I do my best to sort of respond to those things. So um, provide somewhat guidance, I suppose. I generally try to provide clinical advice because I don't have the perspective of being in that particular situation. But yeah, that's where they can contact me. Awesome. And I'm going to shout out your Instagram feed as well. Dr. Gerardo Poli is very good, always entertaining. And I enjoy enjoy that also um Gerardo, thank you so much for your time mate i know it's late really appreciate it thanks for all the work you're doing in a profession it's a great job and really glad you're part of it mate thank you very much and i really appreciate the invite and getting to share thank you 
So just me again, folks. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Gerardo. And a big thank you to him for his time and energy put into that conversation. Uh, now, did you enjoy the show? Did you learn from it? Are you enjoying Blunt Dissection? If you are, please do me a favor. Leave me a review and a rating on iTunes. This helps promote the show, also helps more people listen, and more listeners mean more impact and more likelihood of me getting good guests on the show in future. So jump on there, leave me a review. And if you do want to see any guests on the show, then please send me an email. Hello at drdavenickel.com. Until the next episode, be well, be safe, be happy. Dave out. Dave out.